mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. We leave Lizzie at the end of Chapter 43, daydreaming about Darcy. The text says she could do nothing but think and think with wonder of Mr. Darcy's civility and above all of his wishing her to be acquainted with his sister. Well, we have no moment to wonder whether the wish was sincere because he shows up with Georgiana the next morning, just hours after Georgiana has arrived home to Pemberley. It's a fun thing to imagine. Hope your travels were good. You have a minute to pee and then I'm dragging you out to meet my crush. And it's not just Georgiana who arrives to visit Lizzie and the gardeners, but Bingley, too. Lizzie is shocked by this showing of generosity on the part of the Darcys, and so are the gardeners. This is a lot of attention from the Darcy family, and the Darcys are behaving so differently from their reputations. It is clear to them almost immediately that, quote, the gentleman was overflowing with admiration for their niece. Lizzie, in this chapter, we are told, quote, has much to do. She has to observe everybody else. What is Georgiana really like? Does Bingley still love Jane? Are the gardeners being treated well by Darcy? She has to observe herself. How does she feel about Darcy? Is she excited that he's here? And then lastly, she has to try her best to please everyone which she does because everyone there is predisposed to be pleased by Elizabeth. Here is Deidre Lynch on everything that Lizzie has to do in this chapter. I mean, my take on lots of Austen novels is that she's often writing novels about people like Elizabeth who see themselves as lookers-on in relationship to somebody else's story. Elizabeth thinks that Jane and Bingley are the only game in town, right? And she's watching Jane and Bingley when they're together in the first volume for signs of, as to whether, for instance, Charlotte Lucas is right. Should Jane show more preference overtly for Bingley? And the narrator tells us that she's so involved in watching Jane and Bingley that she doesn't notice that she herself is being watched by Mr. Darcy. In the 18-teens, one of Austen's nieces 
is writing a novel of her own. I don't think she ever finishes it. But the working title of the novel of her own that this niece is writing is which is the heroine, meaning which character is the heroine. And I feel like the niece in choosing that title is sort of doing homage to something that I find quite distinctive about Austen's own practice as a novelist, where you've always got sort of a public story and a story that's less overt, that is the one that you as a reader are involved in, but kind of, you know, where the neighborhood of Meryton is concerned, like the story is clearly about, oh, that Miss Jane Bennett. It seemed as if something was going to happen with Mr. Bingley, but pow, there he went. And that's what Meryton will be gossiping about. This Elizabeth Darcy thing, only we know about it. And only we know about it only because the narrator keeps kind of giving us tips. Even though Lizzie is still watching everyone else in this chapter, this is where other characters start to turn their eyes towards her. The gardeners, Georgiana and Darcy, are all watching her, and the attention is making her nervous. In chapter 45, Lizzie is back at Pemberley, and so is Caroline Bingley. This visit is more awkward than the one the day before, or the one the day before that. Caroline and Mrs. Hurst have shifted the dynamic, and also the pressure seems to be building. What is this relationship between Lizzie and Darcy? Darcy is certainly going out of his way to pay Lizzie attention, and Lizzie is grateful for it, for his kindness, for his care. She wonders to herself, if he still loves me, do I want to love him back? Caroline is trying her best to throw a wrench into Darcy and Lizzie's budding relationship, though. She mocks Lizzie's family's obsession with the militia. She just mocks Lizzie's family in general. But she really just comes off looking like a jerk. Here is Elsie Mitchie on Caroline's jerkiness and how she fits in with the more ridiculous characters of Pride and Prejudice. I think when you read Mrs. Bennett, you know that, that Austen mocks her. But there's a way in which Austen also enjoys her. Right. I mean, in some ways, Austin's like Mr. Bennett. Right. It's like, OK, I'm married to this woman and I'm going to poke her and make her make her jokes about her nerves again. And it's kind of all fun. Right. And I think even with Mr. Collins, although less so, but still there's a kind of weird affectionateness for his pomposity. But I think that the novel, there's almost no sympathy, no affectionateness in the portraits of Miss Bingley and Lady Catherine. I mean, I what I'm interested in in all systems and all novel systems is what does the novel exclude in order to make its world? And I think what Lady Catherine and Miss Bingley represents is what has to be gone. It has to be gone from Darcy. It has to be gone from the world of the novel in order for it to be okay. So I think that's really interesting. I think it means they're very important in Austen's system of things as a negative, right? These chapters are the heart of this romantic comedy. They are the montage of glances, smiles, and accidental touches. But also, Caroline is there trying to fuck it up. Caroline is not what is actually keeping these two people apart, but she is the platonic ideal of what is keeping them apart. She is prideful. She is judgmental of Lizzie's class position. She is fashionable and knows the right people. 
but she also shows us what is fantastic about Darcy and Lizzie. Caroline is cruel and gives in to social mores without thought. She is obsequious and self-centered. So of course, simply by being in the room and being herself, she is the one who gets Darcy to say this. It has been many months since I have considered Elizabeth as one of the handsomest women of my acquaintance. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And we're still live from Pemberley at Hot and Bothered. (sighs) Lauren, you have one of the handsomest faces of my acquaintance. Back at you, honey. I would never call you coarse. I would never say (laughs) that my skin is too brown. (laughs) Your skin is too brown. And that, indeed, is what I want to talk about when I talk about what we need to know when we think about this chapter. So let's talk about let's talk about beauty. Let's talk about Regency beauty standards. And I'm going to shock you with this revelation I know. Guess what? The beauty standards of the day work to enforce standards of class. Huh? Who knew? Isn't that remarkable? And race? Yes, that too. What? <laughs> In fact, pale skin was literally a woman's calling card. The way that you might be like a boob man or a leg man. (laughs) Everyone back in that day was a skin man because that showed you the purity of worth and class of a woman. And of course, as we all know, you may look like you woke up like that. You didn't wake up like that. And that was true back in the day. So for a woman like Caroline, who would never have to walk outside unless she had someone holding a parasol over her head, should she want that, you know, a luminescent pale face was something that was completely highlighted, not just by her practice, but by whatever cosmetics she could afford and whatever her lady-in-waiting might make up for her. So a very natural, luminescent look was popular. You could have a little bit of rosy glow on your cheeks or your lips, but that was all the tinting anyone used. Because, interestingly enough, the French Revolution put an end to these really made-up aristocratic faces that we had in, in the era before, right? Where you would sort of imagine that sort of Marie Antoinette fake beauty mark and big, big, bold cheeks and lips and lined eyes. All of that was completely swept away when heads rolled in France. Also, this is before the advent of modern dentistry, but there are now tooth powders and toothbrushes. And so tooth health is part of your look. And so when when Caroline insults Lizzie's teeth, that's in there, that her teeth just aren't quite good enough, aren't quite up to snuff. When she calls Lizzie's face a little thin, plumpness is, of course, an essential part of Regency beauty because it means you can afford to eat without having to burn it off with any sort of labor. And so that's not just of the figure, but of the face. If you have a rounder, curvier face, that's part of the Regency beauty standard. And of course, the fine eyes. The fine eyes are key. A shining, bright eye was absolutely essential to Regency beauty, except it could not be pulled off with any 
obvious makeup. And so there were little eye drops and eye washes that people would use to make their eyes shine a little bit more. So all of these factors figure into both how Austin is showing us Lizzie and how, of course, Caroline is putting her down right now. I mean, it's also supposed to show us how progressive Darcy is, that he doesn't mind that she's tan. Essentially, Caroline is saying, doesn't Lizzie look so different? You know, she just looks so much worse in the summer than she did last winter. And Darcy is like, she's a little tanner, but other than that, she looks the same. And also, I think she looks great. And it's just such an interesting way to try to show that someone is liberal When Austin is like, look how liberal Darcy is. He doesn't mind tan women. (laughs) Totally. I'm also not convinced that she is even tanner. I think that Caroline's just throwing anything at the wall and hoping that it'll stick. But yes, the fact that this may be true and he's down with it. I mean, we've we've just heard he's very liberal with the poor. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't even hate women with freckles. (laughs) I mean, it's just fascinating. And I know we've talked about this so much, but you can make women stay inside by telling them that they need to have fair skin and shouldn't be seeing a dot of sun. And you can keep them always accompanied by a spy if they absolutely need a parasol over them at all times and want both of their hands available, right? Like, it's just incredible how politically motivated these beauty standards are. Yes, you you need to maintain a certain policed way of being. You need to stay in your lane and you need to make sure that your your money and your genes only traffic with people whose skin is just as white as you might dream of their skin being. Yeah. So Caroline in this chapter, right, is like the person upholding this. She's coming in and she's like, excuse me, these are the beauty standards. You know, Lizzie is too thin for them and Lizzie is too dark for them and Lizzie is too this and that for them. And I can imagine from Caroline's point of view being like, are you freaking kidding me? I followed all the rules. I eat the right amount. I stay inside. I wear my bonnet and I always walk with my parasol. And like, now you're going to fall in love with a girl who doesn't follow any of the rules. Well, and I think she's also saying, in all of these examples, I'm telling you that Lizzie is poor. She's too poor for you. I may be like nouveau riche, but at least I'm riche. And so why are you even looking so far down the ladder when I'm right here in front of you? And of course, she's doing it with such desperation that it's painful. It's villainous, but it's painful. Yeah. I know the sentence at the end of these chapters It's heartbreaking because I think that Austin is showing exactly that balance, right, of it being villainous and painful because Caroline just goads Darcy, right, by insulting Lizzie line by line by line. And Darcy says this thing that I quoted in the opening essay, you know, I Miss Elizabeth Bennet is the most beautiful woman in the history of the world. And, you know, hers is the face that launches a thousand ships, blah, blah, blah. And I don't remember the blah, blah, blah part of that quote. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's exact, Lauren. You should read more closely. (laughs) And after that speech, the text says, he then went away and Miss Bingley was left to all the satisfaction of having forced him to say what gave no one any pain but herself. And so it's villainy and 
victimhood, right? Because she's forced Darcy to do this to her, but she has hurt herself. And although Caroline will be mentioned one or two more times, this is the last time that she's actually like in the scene. And this is her parting shot. And yet it is this last page of Caroline Bingley in which she is the most relatable to me. I mean, I have been so comfortably disdainful of Caroline through the entire book so far. I mean, you've helped me find empathy for Caroline, but on my own, forget it. She's nothing but the mean girl in a John Hughes movie to me. And then we hit this, and I so see my own jealous behavior where I can't stop myself and I just keep pushing on that bruise. I, you know, and it makes me see myself and and think twice about myself. And it I love that Austin is using this character to show me something about myself because I fancy myself having nothing to do with Caroline Bingley. And yet here I am. And I know that I have done the exact equivalent of this probably dozens of times before. Yeah. It's also just a brilliant way for Austin to sort of show us what Lizzie is going to be up against in Darcy's world, right? It's this like epitomized This is it. This is what everybody is going to be thinking about Lizzie at every party she goes to. Like, this is a marriage across culture, right? And it's a class-based culture, but Lizzie doesn't belong. And we hate all the people who are enforcing that class structure. Those people are the worst kinds of snobs, but they exist. And this is how Lizzie will be judged. Yeah, I mean, Caroline describes Lizzie as having a self-sufficiency without fashion, which is intolerable. And you can just imagine (laughs) the eyes of the rich on Lizzie all saying the same thing in unison for the rest of her life. And of course, this is why we love Lizzie, right? And it seems like this is why Darcy loves Lizzie, that the fact that she is without those sort of airs, without those pretensions, that she... She has this independence to herself. And of course, the fact that he differentiates himself from this whole crew in feeling that way, though I I suppose in some ways Bingley does too, it is part of what I think allows us to love him. So Lauren, we like actually meet Georgiana finally. Kind of. Well, I was about to ask what you thought of her, but I feel like you just came out. No, no, I, I've, I have such a heart for Georgiana. You know, one of the things I've really been thinking about reading Georgiana, and it's made me think about Darcy too, is how much the experience with Wickham that only Georgiana and Darcy know, and now Elizabeth knows, how much that determines so much of their behavior through this book. You know, this happened mm-hmm. pretty recently before we meet Darcy. And he's carrying this horrible secret. He's carrying all of this anger that he can't share with anyone. He's all this fear, all this anxiety for his sister. And I'm sure it's preoccupying him all the time while he's in Netherfield, right? And yeah. that preoccupation just sort of comes off as his snobbery. And then we meet Georgiana, and here she is. I'm sure that she knows that he's told Elizabeth that Elizabeth is the only other person on earth who knows this secret except for her and her brother. And here she is about to meet her, probably terrified of how how she appears. And I imagine that that makes her even shyer. And then Caroline brings it up unknowingly and kind of tries to throw it in Elizabeth's face. Well, it, you know, sort of just ends up in Georgiana's face and completely shuts her down more. 
it's just one of these reminders that we never know what people are going through. We never know what behavior is motivated by secrets, by traumatic experiences, by recent blowups, by just the shit that we carry every single day that can make us shut down or distracted or seem impatient or dare I say, intolerant (laughs) in moments. Yeah. And it really just makes me think about those two characters as carrying so much as we're spending time with them. Yeah, I also just think that they're carrying an unfashionable trait, which is shyness, which, you know, the text gives us this really beautiful definition. It says that Georgiana's reception of them was very civil, but attended with all the embarrassment which, though proceeding from shyness and from the fear of doing wrong, would easily give to those who felt themselves inferior the belief of her being proud and reserved. I love that definition of shyness, of the fear of doing wrong. And I love this observation that when people find themselves judging Georgiana, a shy person is essentially a Rorschach test, right? Where you're just like, you're going to look at a person and be like, villain idiot, whatever, like, you know, your worst fears are about her. And Darcy and Georgiana are just shy people. And of course, the first moment of real vulnerability and connection we have with Darcy is when they're gathered around the piano at Rossings. And and he says, yeah, the balls are really hard for me because that's just not my social jam. I don't know how to be in that situation. You're good at this. I'm not. So we do already feel it as a family trait. But it is painful with Georgiana. She can barely push herself to utter a syllable. And when she does, it's at a whisper. She sort of hopes that no one hears it. And it's just interesting to, as someone who's sort of the opposite of shy, it's fascinating to think of that fear of doing wrong. You know, I am someone who, you know, I'm gregarious to a fault because I'm worried that people aren't going to think that I'm excited about them or interested in them or that I won't seem like I had anything to say or I wasn't funny or clever or charming enough. And of course, you know, then I lie awake at night after a party thinking, why didn't I just shut up? And so I think that there are two sides of this, but it is so rare that we get to see a character who we are predisposed to love, who comes so recommended, and then who surprises us with her reticence. The other thing with shyness is that the reason that Jane wasn't more obviously in love with Bingley is because she's shy. And Darcy is coming from the situation with his sister, and he projects Wickham's bad intentions with his sister onto Jane. And so it's going both ways, right? Both Darcy and Lizzie, their favorite person in the world is shy. And yet they are both accusing the other of bad intentions. It's really interesting. Everyone is awkward. And I mean, especially poor Georgiana, who's with her chaperone, who has to gently remind her to serve people fruit. I think it's just a reminder of how young she is and and what Wickham tried to do, right? Like Georgiana is this young 15-year-old who doesn't even feel comfortable stepping into her authority in her own home. And he tried to kidnap her. But it's, it didn't. Didn't the chaperone remind you of Anne de Borg and her chaperone, yeah. her caretaker? 
and these two sort of like silent young girls who were seen as bequeathed to these wealthy older men and seem like they barely have the power to say a word, much less lift a fork to their mouths unless they're instructed to do so. And yet they're prime for marriage and to be mistresses of these estates. I mean, there's something that feels like child slavery about all of this, like both humorously absurd, but mainly just darkly sad. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Okay, we have to talk a little bit about how obvious Darcy is about this crush. Because everyone is like, oh my God, Darcy is clearly into Lizzie. And oh my God, is Lizzie into Darcy? And like, she can't even look at him. And meanwhile, Darcy just keeps talking about fishing. Like, oh, Mr. Gardner, I'll get you some tackle. Let me tell you about the best places at Pemberley to fish. It's just so awkward. There is this weird phase that I think happens pretty frequently, if not (laughs) a truth universally acknowledged, in nascent relationships in which people have to pretend (laughs) that the other person doesn't exist, even if in the past it was nothing to look at each other. And then all of a sudden it's like no one's allowed to look at anyone. No one's allowed to talk to anyone. No one's allowed to talk about it with anyone. It's such a weird human phenomenon that like once that flicker really starts, it's like everything just goes dark. Yeah, I agree. It's very young. It's very sweet. I feel like there's something so precisely observed about the way that these two fall in love, that they fall in love after the miscommunication and with all this anxiety and nervousness. Like they just love each other so much. And it's so scary when you like someone and you don't know if they like you back. And you're like, do I want him to like me back? Am I actually leading him on? I'm not sure if I like him. What am I going to do? And everyone is watching. And of course, everybody is always watching, right? Because you literally can't be alone with someone who you're falling in love with. You can't be alone until your fifth child's baptism. 
I mean, I think it's worth noting that she is gregarious and fearless with pretty much every man in this book, except for Mr. Darcy. She's sexually attracted to him and doesn't know what to do with herself, right? She was gregarious with Darcy up until now, teasing him at Netherfield. And now there's something about him that she's like, oh, shoot, this is different. And so she doesn't get to rely on her old tricks of like charm and gregariousness. He disarms her in this really lovely way. And she has to be like, oh, I have to get to know myself in this different way because you bring out something new in me. And of course, I love it. The fact that it that it is new in her lifetime, you know, it's not like, oh, I haven't felt this in a while. Is, is this the real one? Like you really get the feeling. It's the first time she's had these butterflies and the anxiety that goes along with it. I think there's also a real concern because she was wrong about him before. She read his letter and was like, oof. I was wrong about everything (laughs) and she doesn't want to mess up again. I think when you've messed up in a certain way in front of someone, that is the exact way you don't want to mess up again. And she can't directly say anything. She can't look at him and go, I'm not here because I'm money grubbing. I'm really here by accident. And I read your letter and I really thought about it and you had some really good points. And she can't, she can't do any of that. She can't even acknowledge having read the letter. He may think that she just, you know, lit it on fire. (laughs) So I feel like the sentence we want to look closely at is in this area. So I thought I'd read it for us to discuss. So this is Lizzie reflecting on Darcy and all of this awkwardness and generosity. So the sentence says, Such a change in a man of so much pride excited not only astonishment, but gratitude. For to love, ardent love, it must be attributed. And as such, its impression on her was of a sort to be encouraged, as by no means unpleasing, though it could not be exactly defined. And even though it can't be exactly defined, and even though it's like, half a feature of his awkwardness, she's picking up on it. And she's like, he still likes me. And I'm so glad. The word is gratitude. I think that we so often think of of astonishment as something that's more appropriate to the experience of falling in love. But I really am interested in this word gratitude for it. I think there's a deep maturity in the sentiment, in that articulation, that she can feel ardently and also feel the gratitude. I think we so often think of these feelings as in opposition to each other that, you know, gratitude is desexualized, it's defanged, it's platonic, it's a nice feeling. Ardent love is passionate and gratitude is desexualized. And yet what Austin is telling us here that to love ardently, you have astonishment and gratitude if it's a real thing. You have both of these things. And I think that there's something really really significant in that, that like for me, it's a big takeaway. It's it's naming something that feels important. And I think the articulation of it in Lizzie's perspective is something that is a recognition of her own maturity. And of course, something that exists in contrast to how we will see Lydia loving. Yeah. The line right after this line is she respected 
she esteemed, she was grateful to him. And it says she felt a real interest in his welfare. And I think that this is a wonderful definition of love that Austin has given us, that to respect, esteem, be grateful, and want good things for another person. I think it's so beautiful. And then she says, right, she only wanted to know how far she wished that welfare to depend upon herself, which is the other big theme of these two chapters is how Lizzie is like, I need a moment to reflect. I don't know how I feel. Everyone is watching and she doesn't know what she wants. And it just shows how thoughtful of a person Lizzie is. She's like not giving herself over to her feelings. She wants to observe all of her feelings and analyze. What did I feel? When did I feel it? How did I feel it? She's really coordinating what's going on with her head and her heart. She's also cognizant of her power. It might be the first time we've seen the word power in the book. Austin uses the word power probably before this, but to me, this is the one that really hit me. She says how far it would be for the happiness of both that she should employ the power, which her fancy told her she still possessed, of bringing on the renewal of his addresses. So she knows that she she can get this if she wants it, even though we've talked about her not fully trusting it. But she does feel like she's the one who who makes the call here and that the stakes of that call are really, really high, you know. And I love that the word power comes up in this book around what it means to make someone love you and to lead them to offer a life with you, that you got to know that you really want it and that it's really right for both of you. Because to play around with that without being fully grounded in the acceptance of that, that's a misuse of power. Yeah, it shows us that Lizzie is a great leader. She's like, I've noticed this delicate thing that I've been given, this power, and I need to be very careful. And this is something I talk about a lot. It's really, it is one of my pet peeves when people in the world pretend that they don't have the power that they clearly have. And Lizzie just totally owns it. She's like, okay, this is the power I've been given. And she's not going to resent that power. And she's not going to misuse that power. And I love her for it. Lauren, I just have to bring up one more thing before we wrap up, which is that the sign that the Darcys are so wealthy is that they bring out a plate of fruit. And it is an amazing thing to look back on from 100 years hence when you can get whatever fruit you want, but also this idea of generous hosting and bringing out the very best stuff right? They've like brought out the bottle of Dom, but it's tangerines. And I'm so into it as someone who loves fruit. If someone was like, I pulled out all the stops and brought out like a platter of ripe papaya, I would marry them. I would too. I'd be right there. I will say this is also a detail, though, that signifies something about both Darcy's wealth and the management of his estate, which is that it was really hard to coax this sort of fruit out of a greenhouse. You need to have really, really skilled gardeners, people who are capable of growing these things that seem so exotic on your own little plot of land. To be able to to bring peaches out means that someone someone knew how to grow them. You hired and kept someone who knew 
knew how to grow them. And that was a very unusual thing and something more that we now know about Darcy. And I just have to shout out one thing from our beautiful Bingley, which is just that it's so clear he's still in love with Jane. He's like, hey, Lizzie, haven't seen you since November 25th, the night of the Netherfield Ball. How's your family? I'm not asking for anyone in particular, but like, how are they? The one I haven't seen in about eight months, but I mean, who's counting? I'm about to tell you the exact day. <laughs> it's My adorable. <laughs> well, Lauren, next week. It all falls apart. I know. I was going to say, I feel like we need some sort of dastardly theme music. Just start start cueing the doom, the doom of the next chapter. After every great rom-com montage, the shit has to hit the fan. And Pride and Prejudice invented the forum, so obviously it can't be the exception. So next week, just one chapter, chapter 46. Enemies to lovers, and now they are lovers, at least in intent and desire. And as we all know, in any romantic comedy, this is bound to happen, but it is not necessarily bound to stay on a smooth path from here. These elements of plot, these elements of twists and turns that we are encountering and the feelings that come up between Lizzie and Darcy and us, the reader, you know, this is the framework for the modern romantic comedy. And we really wanted to talk about the imprinting of this on popular culture. And so let's call a dear friend of mine and a friend of Hot and Bothered, Chloe Angel. Chloe is the only person I know who literally has her PhD in romantic comedy. She's also an amazing, badass feminist journalist and editor and She's about to be the romance writer, Chloe Angel. This spring, her very first romance novel is going to be published. It is called Pa de Don't, because Chloe has never met a pun she didn't like. Let's get her on the phone. Hi, Chloe. Hi, Lauren. It's so good to talk to you. Thank you for joining us. Okay. Are we right in thinking that Pride and Prejudice really is sort of the, the genesis, the origin story for all that is to come in romantic comedy? I think it's fair to say that if it's not the first, it is the most powerful. It, if it's not the first, it's the one that has stuck. And it's the one whose DNA shows up again and again and again. It's the reason we have grumpy sunshine romances. It's the reason we have, you know, the mysterious uptight asshole who turns out to be a secret softy. This is, if not the beginning of the universe, it's the Big Bang. Is grumpy sunshine an industry term? Yes, it is. What does it mean? It's honestly, it is exactly what it sounds like. One of them is a closed down, terse, 
unwilling to have a conversation, Darcy. The other one has fine eyes and loves to laugh and loves anything ridiculous and is determined to get a laugh out of the grumpy one. It's Lorelai and Luke on Gilmore Girls. This is a this is a dynamic that comes up over and over again, not just in romantic comedy movies, but you see it obviously in romance novels, you see it on screen. I mean, I think Pretty Woman is a great example, right? He's really closed down and she is sort of bright and bubbly and open to the world. My favorite example of that is you have two scenes in that movie that really illustrate that really well. The first one is her singing to Prince in the bathtub. It's a sign that she's just so uninhibited and so almost so childlike in her wonder of the world. And then you start to see him take on some of those characteristics in that scene where he's barefoot in the park. You know, he's walking around in, the, in his suit barefoot in the park. And that is the, the moment where sunshine starts rubbing up on, on Grumpy. It's everywhere once you, once you know what to look for. Okay, so there's so many different types of characters. There's so many different personality types. And there's so many different ways that people are attracted to each other or fall in love. How do you think we ended up with this model that Austin created lasting so long and being so complete in this genre? I think it's partly the fantasy that someone will change for you, that someone will reveal themselves to be different and more complicated than they appear to be to you, but also to the rest of the world. By the powers of your superior observation and your sheer charm and fine eyes, we'll see something more to them than the rest of the world sees. And that that thing will be true and it will become their dominant character trait. I mean, it's Lizzie is classic, like, not like other girls. She walks and she has freckles. And mm-hmm, I do mm-hmm. think they're, like, not like other girls, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Like, it is a stand-in for the feeling that you get when you meet someone who seems special to you. I think it's a pretty lazy but very effective stand-in for that feeling that you get where you're like, oh, this person is unusual and remarkable and amazing. And even if they're not unusual, they're unusual to you. And then there's also the the attraction that a lot of readers and viewers have to the idea that opposites attract and how enjoyably explosive the the combination of two opposites can be. It's fun to watch. I don't personally think it's that fun to experience, but that's all the more reason to watch it and to read about it, to vicariously experience it through stories and through media, because most of the time when we encounter people who are actually our opposites in real life, we are not that attracted to them. I could just be speaking for myself there. Well, I mean, it's also really interesting because it makes me think, okay, did we get stuck with something that really works to oppress us in a certain way, right? Are we being sold a myth that basically says, yeah, he's emotionally unavailable. He makes you feel like shit, but just you wait, he'll get there. Instead of offering a a different myth that we should be holding on to as something that is idealized and sentimentalized and yearned for. I do think there's that tension between the idea that people can change. You know, as Vanessa likes to say, one of the most romantic things you can do is to change for a person. There's a tension between that and the idea that, you know, you should be treated with respect and admiration from the beginning and you should not have to earn it. You should not have to mine for it. You should not have to figure out like, what is this person's dark secret that makes them this way when they could just be nice to you 
from the beginning, and that's something that you, know, you should expect. But I also think that one of the gifts of Pride and Prejudice is that it is endlessly remixable, endlessly adaptable. And it's really interesting to me to watch contemporary creators take that model and play with it until it until it can become something similar, but not quite as oppressive. As a romance novelist yourself, do you feel like having this framework, these specific dynamics really helps to sustain something at book length? Or do you feel like enemies to lovers, thwarted, grand gesture, any of this stuff, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't necessarily help. I think in an era of increasing expectations of gender equality and with so many workplace romances happening and with so much awareness of like what is normal conflict in a relationship and what is abuse, enemies to lovers is just more challenging than it has ever been. And I say this as someone who just wrote one, I think it is one of the most complex power dynamics to write. And I think we will be really surprised in 10 years if attitudes keep moving on the same trajectory as they've been moving. I think we'll be really surprised to go back in five years and 10 years, definitely 15 years, and read some of the enemies to lovers romances that were published and just think like, oh, yikes, this is just nasty, abusive, bullying, like these two people don't actually like or care about or support each other. This is not romantic. Do you think it's time that we retire the framework? No, because I think I have seen it done recently in ways that don't slide over into abuse and mistreatment. And I, and also I think that it is time to retire the notion that conflict is inherently exciting and a sign of romantic potential and a sign of passion and good things to come. Because while that can sometimes be true, the overwhelming majority of enemies to lovers' romances makes you think that that is always true. And both on page and in real life, I just don't really understand how it works. (laughs) Well, I am now even more excited to read your book and see what you do with this framework. And also, so I can have that awkward but exciting experience of reading sex scenes that you write and think, dang, she likes it like that. <laughs> I don't think that, I don't think that's a fa- and in fact, I actually know that's not a fair assumption to, to make about a, a about a romance novelist um, in the same way that like you wouldn't like read a murder mystery and be like, oh, that's how she likes to kill people. Cool. Good to know. Wait, wait till you read my murder mystery. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I love this podcast. I'm learning so much. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hotandbotheredrompot so that I can keep talking to Lauren about amazing books. As a reminder, we're running our annual fundraiser, raising money for On the Rise. If you're listening to this before February 13th, 2023, you can get a free ticket to our Valentine's live show with any donation of $8 or more. 
We are Not Sorry Production. Our executive producer is the amazing Ariana Nettleman, who had to put up with audio flubs from me this week and was an angel beyond angels. And we love her and are grateful for her. And we are distributed by ACAST. Thanks as always to our Jane Level patrons, Viscount Elise Kenagratnam of Unicornia, Baroness Gretchen Snegas of Breakfast Carbston, Knight Molly Reel of Worcestershire Sauce, the Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiaralandia, and Duchess Biddy Higgins of Bubble Bath. Thanks especially this week to Deidre Lynch, Elsie Mitchie, and Chloe Angel for talking to us. Laura Glass, Margaret H. Willison, AJ Yaramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Stephanie Paulsell, and each and every one of our patrons. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market